The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 44 was a level up episode for Harl, who achieved level four and got a significant boost to his offensive capabilities. But Harl was not the only character to level up. Sav Marimon also increased in power, reaching level 7. This achievement gave the Dark Cleric access to 5th level spells, the highest detailed in the Expert Rulebook. After the level ups, the story continued with the party covering the last few miles on their return to Thangar. Harl shared some lore about Black Nail's vault and what they might find within. Of special significance to the story was Black Nail's son, Grithwip who was believed to have been a master artificer. The dwarf was said to have gone against his father's wishes to lock the tooth of Neranumanax away and prevent anyone from ever using it. Instead, Grithwip used the tooth to create a powerful artifact. At least, that's what the stories say. But whether they are true or mere rumors, none can say for certain. Next, in a story that took place in a much less distant past, we learned of Sav Marimon and got a taste of how he came to worship the old god of decay Clearly, there's more to hear of this tale before the picture is completed. Finally, the party entered a very subdued and quiet Thangar. They wasted no time heading straight for the palace in the hope of speaking with Chief Augerstone, but the chief was not to be found. Instead, they spoke with the seneschal, Hogna Ringlock, who explained that the chief and every capable warrior were down in the mines, fighting off something that had breached their tunnels. To Harl, this was extremely frustrating. He had hoped to deliver his news about Blacknail's vault, along with a map, and then petition the chief for a force of dwarves to help him retake Dwervar. He had intended on washing his hands of the business concerning Blacknail's vault entirely, but now it seems that quite the opposite has happened. Chapter 45, Part 1 Day 56. Morning. Party status. Harl, 26 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 27 of 27. Eridim, 14 of 14. Umora, 18 of 18. Spells available. Umora has memorized Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds, times two, and bless. 
Intention or no, don't you see? It must be you. You must go to Blackmail's vault. There is, simply, no one else. Ringlock's words echoed in Harl's mind. It was early morning, and the dwarf was sitting alone at a table in the dead troll tavern. He was nursing a cup of beer while awaiting the arrival of two scouts Ringlock had promised to provide for the trip ahead. In addition to the beer, Harl had ordered a breakfast of greasy sausages and small potatoes. The food, untouched, had gone cold, and Harl pushed it about on his plate with his fork. He was in a foul mood. Everything that had occurred since his meeting with Ringlock the night before had only made things worse. They had spent the night at the Three Candles Inn, where the proprietor had teased them, suggesting that if they intended to pay for unused rooms again, he wouldn't bother changing the sheets. He had smiled an ugly grin, displaying a mouthful of stinking, rotten teeth, and only by tremendous force of will had Harl refrained from punching out his lights. Later, during the night, he had been tormented by bad dreams. He woke well before dawn and laid awake, agonizing over his new responsibilities. His true loyalties were to his family and the people of Dwervar. He should not be running errands back and forth across the Grunmog accursed Kazmirioth, looking for some Grunmog accursed hole in the ground. Harl looked up from his cup when he heard the door to the dead troll open. The fact that he could hear it above the murmur of the patrons illustrated just how dead the dead troll was. With all the soldiers away in the mines, the patronage of the troll was down to just a few dozen merchants and laborers. Bright morning light filled the doorframe and silhouetted two shapes, one tall and slim, the other short and squat. Stone carver? Called one of them. Harl motioned them over, indicating the empty seats at his table. The previous night, Seneschal Ringlock promised to send Harl a pair of scouts and to equip his party for the imminent expedition to the Eye in the Fire at the base of the Cloud Spur, some seven days' journey from Thangar. But Ringlock did not have the best people to choose from. Anyone of silver or gold rank was already down in the mines, alongside Chief Augerstone, fighting the monsters that had breached their tunnels. The remaining bronze warriors were few, and they were needed to guard the Citadel. Ringlock couldn't spare a single one. Instead, he had improvised. These are the two scouts that Ringlock has secured to lead the party to their destination. The first is an associate of Ringlock's son. Bayun Rumblebell is not really a scout. He is an archiver, historian, teacher, and what the dwarves call an artificer. In the dwarven culture, artificers are to magic users as solemns are to clerics. They're similar, but not identical. I've drawn up the Artificer as a new character class since this particular kind of dwarf is about to figure more and more prominently in the story. The full write-up will be available on the blog shortly after the release of this episode. Rumblebell is at the third level of his class. Artificers only get a d6 hit points per level, so this NPC will have... I rolled an 11. That's more than the min out of 9, so 11 hit points it will be. Accompanying Rumblebell is a tall man with long dark hair caught up in a ponytail and very distinct dark blue eyes. This eye color marks him as a Sachori, a man from the nearby city-state of Sachoros. His name is Raydel Clearbrook. Although basic D&D doesn't have a ranger class, this is really the most appropriate name for what Raydel does for a living. Contrary to Rumblebell, who has spent the majority of his life inside the mountain studying books and maps, Raydel has spent most of his life in the outdoors, studying the living map of the landscape. He's a survivalist, a hunter and a fighter. 
He is also third level, but he gets a fighter's hit dice and therefore has a total of 16 hit points rolled on 3d8. While Rumblebell wears simple traveling clothes of cloth, Raydell is dressed in a very well-worn suit of studded leather. The Artificer's AC is a rock bottom 9, while the Ranger, who enjoys a small dexterity bonus, has an AC of 5. When Ringlock had promised to lend them a pair of scouts, this was not what Harl had in mind for either of these two men. One was a slender human with a long bow slung over his shoulder and a dagger hilt sticking out of his boot. The other was a silver-bearded dwarf, his fat belly strained against his belt, which was fastened practically end to tip by the final belt hole and seemed about to burst. Harl slid his untouched breakfast toward them when they approached his table. Eat if you're hungry. The rotund dwarf eyed the food briefly and licked his lips, but then bowed low at the waist and introduced himself. I am Bayun Rumblebell, he said. This is the ranger, Clearbrook. Call me Raydell, said the dark-eyed man, performing a quick, stiff bow. Well met to both of you, though I must say, you are not who I expected to see come through that door. As to that, explained Rumblebell, most of Thangar's warriors are currently indisposed. It shall be our honor to serve you, in their stead. Harl squinted doubtfully at Rumblebell. Are you sure you're up to this? <laughs> snorted the other dwarf. My spine is still straight, more or less. I can keep up. Besides, without someone who has studied the maps, you'd be walking in circles, young chief Stonecarver. Harl winced at the word. Then he pushed back his chair, got up, and made his way towards the kitchen, saying, Very well. Best not to waste time. Let us be off at once. The sooner we can be done with this business, the better. When he reached the kitchen door, Harl knocked twice and waited. Presently, there were not enough customers to warrant any serving staff, and so the whole tavern was being run by Garrett Magger's ugly wife. After a moment, she appeared at the doorway holding a wooden box. When Harl asked if he might settle his bill, she shook her head and explained that the seneschal had covered not only the cost of his breakfast, but that of the package in her hands as well. She opened it for his inspection, but she needn't have. The smell told him what was inside before he had even laid eyes on them. Mine rations. Mine rations were hard pellets of rendered lard that kept reasonably well, and although they tasted foul, a single one could sustain a dwarf for a day underground. Harl accepted the box with a dispirited word of thanks. Thank you. Rumblebell offered to carry it and declared that he had all the other necessary supplies at the ready. Harl sighed heavily handed the box to the other dwarf, and led the two retainers out of the tavern to meet with the others. Dungeon Dads is a podcast of four dads. John, Tim, Sam, and me, Tom, playing an epic game of D&D. But it's really a story of three mismatched heroes. Jonas Silverwind, a highborn wizard. I am going to cast Mage Ama. Abel Rockbrother, a wayward cleric. Tempest, will you please, in your infinite wisdom, help me to kill these men? And Phil Near Omajira, a warlock who's made a pact with a higher power. I owe it my life. I guess you had to be there. Come for the epic adventure. This army of barbarians in fur and leather, they're rushing the war wagon. Stay for the dad jokes. So, uh, here's the hole, fellas. So, quoth the queen? And 80s references. People are people, so why should it be that you two should get along so awfully? Find us at DungeonDads.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
Hey, not bad. Uh, can we do one more take where you pretend like you actually like the show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dramatis Personae, Sav Merriman, 20 years ago. Winter in Koth was both bitter and beautiful. Its deciduous forests became skeletal armies clad in crystalline armor. Its lakes resolved into frosted blue jewels. The hill atop which the Miramon estate was built provided a commanding view of the surrounding area. And, as a boy, young Sav would spend hours on the terrace simply gazing out over it. He was not often to be found there any longer. Sav had changed over the past year. Always a quiet boy, he had become almost silent as a man. He preferred to be alone and moved about the manor grounds like a ghost. Ostensibly, he spent the best part of each day alone in his room, reading selections from his well-stocked library. In truth, none of his books interested him anymore. Now, there was only one book he wished to read. The book. Sov learned how to wait and listen for his grandfather's footsteps. Over time, he came to know the sound of each individual footfall and the step upon which they sounded. He became an expert at moving around unnoticed. Shadow-like, he would slip into the second-floor study mere minutes after his grandfather departed. In moments, the book would be in his hands, and he would let himself fall into its pages. The book was more than an instructional text, interleaved between the descriptions of rituals and details of how to perform them correctly was a serial narrative. The story centered on a young knight named Sir Voss Lacaria, the Moth's Wing Paladin. Sir Voss was strong and wise, but ultimately alone in his righteous quest. Sav felt profoundly connected to this character. The story of the Moth's Wing Paladin resonated somehow with his soul. Eventually, Sav came to fantasize that he was the Moth's Wing Paladin. He felt every emotion every high and low, as Sir Voss progressed through his quest, or stumbled in his efforts. One day, in the dead of winter, as a snow squall blew and raged outside the estate's stone walls, Sov stole up to the second-floor study, as was his habit. In a trice, he had the key from the hiding place atop the lintel and fitted into the lock of the chest. By now, he was an expert and made barely a whisper as he opened the chest and removed both the tome and the double-headed implement, which he always kept on his lap as he read. The story was so real, Sov could almost hear the huff and whinny of the night's dark steed as he traveled along the dusty roads. Sov was so engrossed in the story of the Moth's Wing Paladin that he did not hear his grandfather approach until it was too late. I knew it. I have known for weeks, faithless child. You are no kin of mine. Moriel Merriman was not a young man anymore, but he had been a champion once upon a time, and an aura of power still clung to him. He balled his right hand into a fist. There was something else, a look in his eyes. Fury? Desperation? Perhaps both. Or perhaps it was madness. You will put that back where you found it. Now. To Moriel's surprise, 
Sov calmly looked up from the book and said, No, this book is yours no longer. Sov was not the only one to have become obsessed with the book. Upon his grandson's refusal, Moriel became overcome with rage. He lunged at the young man. Ah! Sov sprang to his feet. He was quick enough to catch the implement midair before it fell to the floor, but he was not able to pull the book out of his grandfather's reach in time. Moriel's bony hand darted out, and his fingers closed over one half of the book. Sov retained the other half, and a tug of war began. Let's go. It's mine. With the tearing sound, the spine sundered, and the two men were thrown in opposite directions as the book was torn in half. As the blizzard raged outside the manor walls, so now a blizzard of pages filled the study. Amid the cascade of paper, Sov and Moriel regained their feet and slammed back into each other with a strength and force that should not have been possible for either of them. <clears throat> but the wrestling match did not last long. Sov was younger, faster, and more importantly, he still held the implement in his left hand. <clears throat> the sounds of their struggle traveled through the manor's hallways and salons, reaching every corner. Servants came rushing to see what was the matter, as did Sov's mother. What they found confused and horrified them. Moriel slouched over his grandson. Sov's expressionless and unblinking face smeared with blood. A wide crimson pool spread out all across the floor, touching loose paper pages which bloomed like a field of poppies as the blood made contact. Had anyone thought to look, they would have discovered that unbelievably. Every page of the ruined book, every single one, was completely blank. I don't think it would be particularly interesting to roleplay and dramatize the morning hours of Day 56. During this time, the entire expedition party assembles and meets with their guides. Raydell is introduced as a Sachori ranger who will serve the party as a forward scout. Rumblebell is an expert historian and artificer who has studied maps and can provide a wealth of knowledge about the area that they'll be passing through. He also knows a good deal more about the Black Nell family than any other present. As long as both of these guides are alive, the party will be able to travel very quickly. The route they'll take will mirror the one between Dwervar and Thangar. Once again, they will cut southeast to the foothills, skirt the southern edge of the Kazmirioth mountain range, and re-enter it a few days later. So long as nothing disrupts their plan, they will need two days to reach the foothills, another two in the foothills, and three more for the trip back into the range and to begin their ascent of the Cloud Spur on the way to the Eye in the Fire. In preparation for the trip, all party members have procured clean clothes, two weeks worth of traveling rations in addition to the mine rations, and bedrolls for the humans. As mentioned earlier, everyone is at full hit points and has a contingent of available spells. And with that out of the way, it looks like we are back to a hex crawl. Because the area around Thangar is vigilantly patrolled, even now when so many of its warriors are in the mines, I will not roll for any wandering encounters on the first day, nor will I roll for a stumble upon. This area is simply too well known. Let's see what the weather is like on day 56. Rolling a d20. A seven. It's a cloudy day, but lately the sunrise comes noticeably later in the evenings and the party makes good time clearing the Thangarian watchtower perimeter long before they make their first camp. On day 57, a 10. Okay. Some of the clouds have parted, and patches of blue are visible overhead. 
Rumblebell sweats profusely and begins to complain of blisters, but otherwise makes good on his promise to keep up with the group. At this point, Raydell Clearbrook begins to split his time between traveling with the party and ranging ahead alone. Stumble upon for day 57. A 17. No result. The wandering encounter roll? A 3. Just before sunrise on day 57, Raydell returns to the party and informs them that if they push on a little further, they will clear the mountain range before twilight turns into night. Chapter 45 Part 2 Day 58 Morning Party Status The party status is unchanged. Ah, my feet! These damned blisters! Rumblebell was sitting on the fallen log by which they had decided to make camp. His feet stuck straight out in front of him, nakedly pink and covered in sores. How do you lot stand it? You don't get them anymore after you've been traveling a while, offered Umora. She had taken a liking to the odd dwarf and had already spent hours in conversation with him. Putting up with his constant whinging was a small price to pay for his company as far as she was concerned. She found his approach to magic fascinating, and he seemed to feel similarly about her. Even when they were not discussing spellcraft, Umora found Rumblebell to be a kind and patient teacher of the dwarven tongue. She had long ago learned not to bother Harl with her questions. The topic seemed to irritate him. Rumblebell lifted up one of his boots and sniffed it, made a face, and pulled it on. I hope you're right, Umura. I can barely stand the pain. We can barely stand to listen to you, mumbled Harl under his breath. Eh? What's that stone carver? Mm, nothing. Forget it. Put your other boot on. It's time to go. Have mercy. Just one more hour. Could we not tarry just one more hour? Put on your other boot, or I'll, I'll put it on for you. Rumblebell made a show of suffering, wincing as he followed Harl's instructions. What do you say, Sachori? Two days in the foothills? The Sachori ranger squinted off into the distance, did a quick mental calculation, and replied, Two days will see us to the best place to re-enter the range, if your maps are correct. <laughs> They're correct. Worry not on that account. All right, now, where did I put my pack? Ah, there it is. Ready to go. At this point in the story, I decided to go ahead and roll the dice for each day, straight down the line, until something interesting occurred. I'm not sure why, but I was reasonably confident that nothing special would happen to interrupt the party's progress. Turns out I was wrong about that. Here are the rolls I made. For day 58, a 10, a 14, and a 4, for weather, stumble upon, and wandering encounter checks respectively. For day 59, a 7, a 13, and a six. After seeing that number six on the die, I had to stop and update my Foothills Wandering Encounter table to adjust it for mid-level characters. I'll post it on the blog shortly after this episode is released for those of you who might want a sneak peek at what is to come. This new table calls for a d12. Here's the roll. A one. Okay, I need to make a few more rolls for surprise and whatnot to really flesh out this encounter, but I'll do those off mic. For now, let's get back to the adventure. The previous day had been overcast and hazy, with patches of sunshine poking through the cloud cover periodically. Now it was evening on their second day in the hills. The skies this day were an endless and unbroken iron gray. The air became humid and had a pregnant quality that promised rain. 
Despite the lack of sun, moods were generally high among the companions. Gyrios especially seemed in high spirits. He beckoned Eridine over to his side to express his thoughts. I had forgotten how much I missed seeing trees, Eridine. All that time in the mountains. They are beautiful, of course, but I missed seeing all the colors of nature. Just look at that. Gyrios pointed to a stand of myrtle that practically sang in joyful pink. Behind it was a thicket of dogwood bursting with white blossoms. Eridine favored Gyrios with a rare but pretty smile that made his heart skip a beat. She nodded enthusiastically. Nature, as though in an effort to impress them further, sent a pair of iridescent butterflies across their path. The insects winged by, spiraling in a double helix. All around, birdsong seemed to grow sweeter, and the companion spent the rest of the day mostly in contented silence, admiring the gallery of marvels that the landscape provided. Eventually, the clouds drifted off and the promise of rain left with them. In the late evening, a soft magenta sunset was the finale to a day full of nature's artistry. It will be the solstice soon, remarked the cleric. Eridine wasn't sure what that meant to Gyrios, but she knew that it was the longest day of the year. In reply to her questioning face, Gyrios explained, It is considered the holiest day of the year by we who follow Mazagar. In the last minutes of remaining light, Raydel selected a hilltop with a vantage in all directions. This should be a safe and comfortable place to make camp. They decided to forego a fire, spread out their bedrolls, and laid out under the emerging stars. Vorodon is hiding his face tonight, said Gyrios as he pulled a blanket over his body. Looking up, the others could see that the moon was almost invisible. Only the slightest hint of its silvery curve shone against the black canopy. Everyone knew it would be a very dark night. They set their watch order, Eridine first, then Rumblebell, followed by Raydel, Umura, Harl, and finally Gyrios, so that he might witness the dawn. Each watch would last for a little over an hour. Hours later, Raydel politely woke Umura for her shift. The sorceress found that, by night, the area did not feel nearly as welcoming. She tried to busy herself by reviewing the new dwarven vocabulary Rumblebell had taught her, but she was distracted by sounds that came from far off to the north. Again she tried to concentrate, sitting cross-legged and looking up at the stars. As there was no light coming from anywhere else, she soon got a strange feeling. It was as though she were floating in space. Another sound, this time much closer. Should she wake the others? No. It was probably just her imagination running loose in the darkness. The noise came again. There was no ignoring it this time. She fumbled in her pocket and retrieved the Owl of Thresendia. Eltonok. Immediately, it grew hot in her hands. And then she saw them. Pairs of eyes, red as rubies, in the dark. At first, it was one pair. Then another, and another, and another. They were all around her. A little shriek escaped her as she shot up to her feet and kicked at the nearest sleeping form. <coughs> then a sound began. Voices. Voices from every direction. The others were just rousing from sleep when there was a whistling sound and a spear planted itself in the earth at Umura's feet. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. One of the best ways to help is to rate or review the show. I truly appreciate each and every one. I'd like to read one from the Podcast Addict app. 
This one was posted by The Stump. The Stump writes, Glad that I found this pod. The story is exquisite in its simplicity, not overdone or overacted. The characters feel real, with their own motivations that are not forced. The tension is thick, and the threats feel genuine as the dice hold their fate. A in delivery and execution. Cheers. Cheers right back, The Stump. So glad to hear that you're enjoying the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to post the review. This episode has a larger-than-usual cast, and I'd like to thank them, too. Playing Moriel Merriman, Peter Wheeler, who runs Regulus, a channel that assists dungeon masters with homebrewing and keeping the game fresh, even for veteran players. He's on Facebook and Instagram as Regulus RPG. Young Sov is played by the talented Michael Roundtree. The new character, Rumblebell, is played by James Schrall from the excellent solo play podcast, Subclass Act. Yet another new character to the show, Raydell Clearbrook, the Ranger, is played by Bruno of the Chronicles of the Crimson Hound YouTube channel. Thank you so much to all of this episode's voice talent. For those who are curious, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of stuff related to the show. Check it out at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. You can contact me on Twitter at manticoretale or on Instagram at taleofthemanticorepodcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Lately, I'm very interested in collecting questions for a potential future mailbag episode. Hit me up if there's anything you want to know. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. Have you ever dreamt of being a superhero? Legends of Superhero Story is a new actual play podcast using the Legends Superhero role-playing game system, available on all podcast platforms. This exciting new superhero tabletop RPG follows our Game Master Jack and our fledgling heroes played by Chad, Emily, Amanda, and Daniel as they work their way through their origin story and beyond. Listen in as they discover their powers and abilities. Let's hope they learn to work together as a team in time to save the world and truly become Legends. Legends of Superhero Story is available on all podcast platforms. For more information, follow us on social media at The Legends Cast or visit our website, www.matchplaygames.ca forward slash The Legends Cast. <laughs>